Welcome to the Anthro Now podcast series, a collection of conversations about the relevance of anthropology to public life. These podcasts can be found online at www.anthronow.com. Welcome to another installment of the Anthropology Now podcast series. My name is Eric Howard. I'm a PhD student in anthropology at the New School for Social Research. Also from the New School, we have Nicholas Langlitz, assistant professor at NSSR. Professor Langlitz has doctoral degrees in medical anthropology and history of medicine, and he joins us to discuss his research as it relates to public awareness of anthropology and brain research. Welcome, Professor Langlitz. Hello, thank you. So I guess to begin, can you briefly tell us about your recent book, Neuropsychedelia? Neuropsychedelia is a book about the revival of psychedelic research since uh, the 1990s, which George H.W. Uh, Bush, the US president, called the decade of the brain. It's very much about the mainstreaming of psychedelic research through uh, science. After much of this research had broken down in the wake of the counterculture, it's also an ethnographic book about two uh, neuropsychopharmacology laboratories, one in Switzerland and one in um, California. The two problems at the heart of the book are a science studies question about how the context, the laboratory context of this research feeds into the experiences of test subjects that are administered psychedelic drugs in experimental settings. There has been a long-standing uh, topos in, in discourses about, anthrop about psychedelic drugs that assumed that set and setting uh, impact what subjects experience. This actually goes back to anthropological research on um, the use of peyote by Native Americans in the late 19th century. Uh, and then was taken up by Timothy Leary and popularized. And uh, the researchers today are very well aware of, of that. I think part of the problem from a science studies perspective that has come out of that is that it has given rise to a very social constructionist way of thinking about these experiences. And it turns out that actually even if you control set and setting uh, to the extent that you can in any reasonable uh, form, there still is a lot of uncontrollability in the effects that these substances produce. And I take this uncontrollability to be both a challenge for uh, the pharmacologists who primarily construct the effects of these substances as being uh, caused by the substances and the people who emphasize that uh, it's all about set and setting. There is also an existential problem of living uh, uh, in the center of the book, which is about how to reconcile materialism and mysticism. And that's a challenge that most of the researchers in the laboratories I, I worked in struggled with and um, that I would also consider to be a problem in my own life. So that's something that I've uh, been working through, you know, on a more traditional interpretive anthropology level, um, as I spoke to, to people in this world. And perhaps some of the projects you have in line uh, for the future? 
So I also have uh, two new projects in the pipeline now, uh, since the psychedelic uh, um, book has been published last year. One is an um, quasi-ethnographic study of uh, neurophilosophy as a um, trading zone between neuroscience and the analytic philosophy of mind. I focus particularly on dream research. And what I'm basically interested in is that there is an interesting common ground between uh, science studies perspectives on um, uh, the, the neurosciences on the one hand and the philosophy of science that is built into neurophilosophy and the fact that neurophilosophers uh, roughly at the same time as uh, uh, science studies people started going to the laboratories also started going to neuroscience laboratories. So I, I basically want neurophilosophy, uh, especially in its reductionist uh, variety and uh, the anthropology of science to clash. And uh, the other project is about uh, primatologists studying uh, chimpanzees ethnographically, as they say. And it has a similar structure in that um, this is also a terrain where you have evolutionary anthropologists interested in the phenomenon of culture. So there is a common but also very contested ground between cultural anthropology on the one hand and primatology on the other hand. And again, I'm interested in the clash that that produces and the possibilities for collaboration. You work at the intersection of life sciences and philosophy, um, fields of study that seem to grapple with uh, technical and uh, at times abstract concepts. Uh, as a researcher in these fields, you're challenged uh, to manage with uh, in intellectual communities that have very kind of nuanced conversation using um, specific languages, those of neuropsychopharmacology and philosophy. Uh, and at the same time, you're given you're giving um, public lectures and forums oriented toward public consumption, uh, such as the Horizons uh, Conference in 2011. From prior conversations that we've had, um, you've, uh, you've had an interest in programs like NPR's Radiolab, which by their own accounts are interested in blurring the boundaries between science, philosophy, and the human experience. So um, my question for you is, how do you address the task of kind of translating, uh, if that's the right way to say it, these concepts for a broader public? And by, by broader public, I'm referencing the audience you would encounter, people who are interested in uh, things like dreams or hallucinogen research. Well, I guess when I speak to a broader public or when I write for a broader public, I'm usually trying to keep the jargon down. Um, I'm trying to explain technical concepts uh, if they're uh, key and and um, I, I use them. I think um, it's actually important to use technical concepts in a limited way in such um, frameworks because it's a way of educating a public. Try to put things as, as, as simply as you can. What's maybe more important that uh, is that in, in a lot of these uh, contexts, for example, when I give interviews to journalists, people are usually quite frustrated if you stay on a um, on the level of second order observations. And for the drug project, for example, you usually get questions about what you think these drugs are actually doing. And um, I have 
given up my professional constraints in in these contexts i think you know i i do have uh, uh views about what these substances are doing i um you know have have read the the scientific literature on them for long enough the claim that cultural contexts influence uh, the effects of these substances is also actually a very first order observation claim and i i think it's quite quite important that one doesn't uh, constrain oneself in a way that a lot of ethnographers do that you know you actually refrain from from articulating your own view of of the world and and constrain yourself to representing the views of others so i i think that's that's something that that really helps when you communicate with a broader audience a good deal of your academic training uh, took place in europe uh, where it seems there's a greater relationship between intellectuals and the public do you th see this as the case and if so what venues do you see in the U.S. Uh, that have a, the potential uh, to strengthen the, that relationship? And what can we learn uh, from, from examples in Europe? It's definitely true that th there is a bigger space for intellectual engagements in the public in Europe. It's also gradually becoming smaller so you know much of these forums are uh, are from public news media and they're under quite significant pressure by politicians uh, to um, increase the number of uh, television viewers or radio listeners and that of course also means pressure to um, keep more difficult intellectual conversations either out of the programs or to shift them to late night programs where they just will not get a whole lot of attention but they're traditionally they're just you know are our, our, uh, spaces in the newspapers and and on tv uh, where um uh there is a role for for uh, academics and intellectuals to address a, a broader audience that I don't see as much in the U.S. I don't think that there is much to be done about it. I mean, the problems or the the, the obstacles seem to be very structural. You know, as long as. I mean, the New York Times has basically given up reviewing academic books largely in, in its review section unless you know it's an academic writing for a trade press. And uh, as long as that is the trend, you know, there, there, there will be forums and obviously there are forums in the U.S. which are not purely academic. Uh, I don't know, just think about uh, cabinet in, in 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 New York and, and Brooklyn. But when you look at the kind of people who who are participating in these forums, it's pretty much uh, people with graduate degrees uh, writing and 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 talking to people uh, with graduate degrees. It's not really a broader public. So I'm kind of pessimistic about uh, about that in, in in the case of the U.S. Uh, to go back to something you said earlier, uh, you mentioned that you're looking at research since the decade of the brain, um, as you said, occurred from 1990 to 1999. Um, and in our own time, President Obama has asked for a considerable, uh, considerable increase in funding for the brain initiative. Um, and there's other brain-oriented research that has kind of taken an upswing. Scholars and journalists have both commented that neuroscience is all the rage right now. Can you comment on how the increased uh, public attention and funding toward brain science affect the kinds of audiences for human rights or perhaps the questions that you ask and perhaps to go a little further with it as as the public funds go into uh 
pumping money into these different initiatives, genome. Pro- I don't, I don't know the relationship with the genome project, but specifically, a decade of the brain research, uh, uh, the brain initiative today. In some ways, your research is also made possible by the the flurry of activity on the scientific end, and then you are engaging this uh, public interest. Well, I think. A naturalist conception of human life is something that is has become a lot more prevalent since the 1990s, both with the Human Genome Project and with the Decade of the Brain. And basically, that's what I've been writing about for some time now and what my new projects are about. So if there is growing interest in naturalist conceptions of human life, there is growing interest in my work. Uh, and and the audience for which I, I write um, you know, has a potential of, of, of becoming broader. You know, I think writing about these, the, the hype of these life sciences from an ethnographic perspective always bears the risk of participating in the hype. So to make a book about the revival of psychedelic research interesting, the easiest way to do it is to sell it as there being a historical revival of psychedelic research. You know, if, if you want to sell neuroplasticity as the latest revolution, you know, you better sell it as the latest revolution. And since anthropology has come to put so much emphasis on historical events and on the emergence of new epistemic objects and ways in which we see ourselves and so on, we are very prone to become complicit with you know the, the the hype that's generated by the scientists to get public attention and and funding and you know i think it's basically a thin line to walk i don't think that you can entirely avoid it uh to some extent of course a second order observation of such a hype is also you know exactly what we are doing but on other levels I think it's also a reason for anthropologists to think more critically about this obsession with the emergent and with events and to give more thought to uh, what the more lasting uh, anthropological significance is that that your project is is addressing, uh, which is going to outlive you know, the decade of the brain, which is over now for for uh, almost 15 years. And, um, and, you know, I hope that in f- another 15 years, somebody will still be interested in reading a book that, you know, was about that period, but but is not simply about a, a very short lived historical era, but addresses much broader questions about the relationship between materialism and mysticism and so on, which uh, have been with us for hundreds of years now and will probably still be with us at least uh, a couple of decades. So maybe to give another plug to your book, from students and other readers, the book has been said to be very approachable and and clear. Was there anything uh, specific to the writing process in the actual processual effort of writing a text that, that you employed? I'm not necessarily talking about just not using jargon, but also maybe also anticipating a readership that might, for instance, be interested in mysticism or the use of uh, hallucinogens for spiritual purposes. Who do you imagine your audience to be? Well, as I was turning neuropsychedelia into a book, I 
started to teach undergraduates at, at the new school. And that has been really helpful uh, in, in, in the writing process uh, because at the end of the day, um, you know, if, I guess undergraduates are your standard broader audience uh, as an academic. And the book is not really written for a broader audience beyond the academy. It's still uh, quite technical in uh, the anthropological um, discussions, and it is also quite technical in the uh, neuroscientific and uh, psychopharmacological uh, literature. That really restricts the audience that you can address. And for me, that was quite important because you know, I guess you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really working against the separation uh, of what C.P. Snow called the two cultures. Uh, so in a way, I imagine my readers to uh, bridge these two cultures uh, the way that I do. And of course, you know, many readers don't do that, but it's there is a pedagogical um, uh, impetus and, and but also a, a quite a you know, I guess a, uh, an imaginary tension between me and my readers because of that. So I try to seduce to some extent, for example, with ethnographic vignettes and draw people into the existential uh, dimension and urgency of, uh, of, of these experiences. But after a while, I want them to realize that to think about these experiences critically, uh, you do need to think about them both in anthropological and neuroscientific terms. And there, you know, there is a certain antagonism between these perspectives, but uh, I, I, I want my readers to work through this antagonism with me. And this you know, slightly antagonistic relationship to my imagined readers is something that is with me basically all the time when I write. I, I always imagine particular audiences and usually there is something I want to tell them that confronts their beliefs and their biases and and so on. So I'm, you know, when I imagine anthropologists to write for, I, I usually you know, write against them and, and I write against the neuroscientists and I write against a certain uh, public discourse um, that frames uh, drugs in a certain way and sees particular kinds of problems. And, you know, in the case of neuropsychedelia, I also very much write against the psychedelic community. and. You know, the more, especially the more esoteric occurrence uh, in that uh, psychedelic community. I'm not sure if I asked the question right, but you answered it perfectly. Thank you, Nick, for letting us hear your perspectives. Thank you. Anthronow podcast can be found online at www.anthronow.com.